I need to accept that I'm not going to get all the other stuff done. But it's better for us, time and time again, to do the things that matter most that are going to move the needle for your work, for your life, for your community, and accept the things that we can't get to versus being overwhelmed and not doing the things that will push the needle the furthest and instead running around feeling productive, but not being productive. How do you make time for what matters most to you? And how do you even figure out what truly matters most to you as you work through your growing to-do list? Now, like you, I have breathed in the messages around the imperative to optimize my time, my body, my business. Now, Merriam-Webster defines the verb optimize as to quote, make perfect, effective, or as functional as possible. So when I step back from this narrative, I see how it reeks of perfectionism. Be perfect, do perfect, be seen as perfect, optimize. (laughs) And anything less than what I perceive as optimized leaves me feeling like a failure. And the pressure to maximize and optimize often conflates with what matters most to us. And when productivity becomes centered on optimizing over just doing the things that matter most, we end up sacrificing what matters most to us. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. When you're not clear on what truly matters most to you, how you decide to use your precious time can leave you feeling overwhelmed and lost. And even your sense of time and what you can get done gets skewed by the tyranny of the urgent, right? (laughs) Or comparison to how others are doing life and work and what we should be doing. And I think my fixation on time stems from my season as a scheduler for a United States Senator. Getting things in my calendars and planners and checking and rechecking things, it calms my nervous system. And for many years, (laughs) I actually thought I could be the boss of time. This is so embarrassing to to say this here. (laughs) Meaning my former boss's schedule was like a puzzle where I thought I could bend time to my will like Dr. Strange. And it gave me this sense of control. In many ways, it was totally a false sense of control. And it also gave me an unrealistic sense about time and how to use it for my own life, because there were so many things that went into making my former boss's schedule come true, a whole team of people, a huge team, right? So when I was younger, I would spend more time going over my calendar and organizing versus really taking action. And if you're like me, you've invested in various planners and read many books on time management. But the focus of these books is about doing more with less. And you know that saying, my eyes are bigger than my stomach. Well, my eyes have always been bigger than the time available on my calendar. And no one taught me about time boundaries. In fact, I saw people around me pushing themselves to do more with less time, less resources, less support, as if it was a badge of honor. 
And the movies and TV shows I watched growing up glorified this. And no one I was exposed to was talking about health or well-being or equitable workspaces around the use of time. It was all about striving and grinding as the norm. And the message was loud and clear, suck it up, chin up, get it done. And falling or failing is on you and you alone. And this mindset is obviously deeply problematic as many are pushing back on these approaches today to how we use our time and the expectations around how we do work. Now, boundaries around time means disappointing people. So if you're focused on over-delivering and making everyone happy, things can get messy fast. If what matters most means meeting metrics that are set by others, burnout and disillusionment are inevitable. These dangerous messages have us chasing something we think will give us relief, when in turn, we only feel worse we put this kind of pressure on ourselves. Now, today's Unburdened Leader guest has an approach, even like a philosophy, around time and getting things done that has transformed my relationship with work, time, and my calendar, though I'm still a work in progress. (laughs) Charlie Gilkey helps people start finishing the stuff that matters. He's the founder of Productive Flourishing, author of the book Start Finishing and the Small Business Life Cycle. And he's the host of the Productive Flourishing podcast. Before starting Productive Flourishing, Charlie worked as a joint force military logistics coordinator while simultaneously pursuing a PhD in philosophy. He lives with his wife, Angela, in Portland, Oregon. Now pay attention to what Charlie identifies as the busy party and how often we all show up to it. And notice Charlie's take on how we get servant leadership wrong and how this flawed lens on servant leadership is wearing us out. Now listen also to how Charlie breaks down the importance of clarity on what matters most so we can best manage our time. Now please welcome Charlie Gilkey to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Charlie, welcome to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Rebecca, thanks so much for having me. And I'm enjoying that we're continuing conversations that we've had over multiple years. And so that's really fun. I'm really looking forward to this. I, um, I've been in the rabbit hole in your blog since I booked this interview and I keep going back. It's like a little PhD on your website. So for those of you listening, go there, enter at your own risk of time, um, but you will be better for it. And speaking of time, I want to kick off our conversation because this is something I know you think about, write about, and work with um, leaders and teams a lot about. And it's one of our most valuable resources and also one of the most challenging things to manage, especially after a disorienting two years. And I've read that you believe we don't have a time management problem, which I thought was so provocative, but Mm -hmm. really a priority management problem, more specifically self-management problems. So I'd love for you to talk about what you mean by priority management problems and self-management problems, and how is this lens on time different from conventional wisdom around time? My thinking has changed a little bit on this since writing this post. Hmm. I think it's just a a different word that I want to put in there. And I think it's actually we have an expectation problem. And that that has become even more prevalent as we've been working through this pandemic cycle. Because, and I'll start there, right? 
during the pandemic cycle, what most of us did not realize is that the new pandemic or the pandemic created a new macro project for us. So in Charlie's world, a project is anything that takes time, energy, and attention. So it took all of the ways we work, all the ways that we negotiated ourselves and in society and dumped them all out on the table and said, you know what? Figure it out again. That in and of itself is a project. If you got sick because of COVID, that's a project because time, energy, and attention. If you had to start homeschooling or co-teaching, that's a project. And so all of a sudden, the life that we knew, the expectations that we had for how we use time, how we orient to priorities changed. Except mm-hmm. it took a lot of us a long time to figure out we need to change our expectation about what's possible for us to do during this period. Maybe I remember so vividly because it's March two years ago, right? So vividly, people were like, I'm going to mm-hmm. read all the books and I'm going to start a thing. And it's like, well, yeah, you may not be going to work, but you have these other projects that are replacements for it. And so why I frame it more as expectation problems these days is because when we think about 24 hours, um, the, the amount of time we have in a day, we don't actually have those 24 hours. Some of that's spent sleeping, some of that's spent eating, some of that's just spent with the routines of life. But most people, when they wake up in the morning, they're like, okay, I've got eight hours at work if you're on this sort of standard sort of thing. Actually, you don't, right? You have, of those eight hours, you might have two to four solid focus hours. And then you might have a few meetings and you have some admin time. But our expectation is that when we start planning and we start doing those things that we base it off eight hours for when it comes to certain types of work. And we're just not seeing that clearly. So once you start seeing that, it's like, oh, if I only have, say, two to four hours of really focused work today to do that, you know, what Cal Newport calls deep work, I call it focus work. Maybe instead of expecting myself to do six to eight hours, maybe I reprioritize and say, you know what? These are the projects and the priorities that matter most. Those get those two to four hours. And I need to accept that I'm not going to get all the other stuff done. But it's better for us, time and time again, to do the things that matter most that are going to move the needle for your work, for your life, for your community, and accept the things that we can't get to versus being overwhelmed and not doing the things that will push the needle the furthest and instead running around feeling productive, Mm -hmm. but not being productive. Okay. To follow up to this, because I think you're spot on with the expectations piece. And I remember, I think it was after first being exposed to your work, I realized, you know, that saying your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Well, my eyes are bigger than my calendar. And so I started to like put everything on my calendar because my expectations of what I could do was ridiculous. But here's the thing, Charlie, I'm not exclusive to this. This is like everybody I know. And there's a few people that maybe master what you teach, but that's the outlier. There's like this kind of massive expectation, you know, disorientation around what we think we can do with our time. And then the other piece, when you say we have to accept what we can't do, I mean, I can heal. I could feel parts of me puff up and I've seen this in others. Oh no, I'll get it done. Oh no, no. So at what cost? At what cost? My, my well-being, my relationships, my joy, but there's still this dissonance 
with myself and with others that, but maybe I'll do it differently. There's like this, yeah, but sure, sure, for I hear you. So, and, and I know this is not new, new to you. So what do you, what's continually contributing to this massive expectation disorientation around our sense of what we can do each day? Um, so I have some theories here. Um, I say theories because I haven't validated them with hard research yet, right? Mm -hmm. um, part of it is the omnipresent social media world that we live in. Yeah. Because we're constantly, and I don't think we understand how much we're primed to, like every time you flip and you see someone else's accomplishments, that creates a pace, unfortunately, for what we think we should do. So if I wake up and I see all of my community, they've done a bunch of things and I haven't, then I feel like I'm behind. I feel like I'm not doing enough, right? And we forget that the scope of things that we're watching is just hard for our brains to process. Like, wait a second. It's not that people are 30 times faster than I am. I just saw 30 people doing things at their own rate, and I accelerated that. Mm. I think another part that's going on is um, some of the worst parts of productivity culture that tries to get you to maximize and squeeze every minute out of every damn thing. Yeah. This is why they're, they're about every three or four years, Rebecca, I'm like, I'm done with productivity. I'm out. I do not want to be a part of this conversation. <laughs> um, and then I get all in my feelings about it, but I'm like, you know what? Actually <laughs> that's, they are taking the conversation that direction. We can steer it back this direction. <laughs> well, I want to dig into that more because I think you're, I, I agree with you. And I see the word productive weaponized around mm -hmm. time and how people they end up not feeling good enough because they connect their worthiness to not doing enough or being productive enough. So yeah, I want to hear more of where you want to steer the conversation because we're trying to hack time. We're trying to hack health. We're trying to hack everything that we're, we're hacking physics. I don't know. And it's not enough. It fuels the scarcity. And then there's this sense if you try to not hack it, that you're doubting yourself and you're settling like it, it's just this weird mind f i see happening and it's hard for people to unhook from it and it feels really insidious and in many ways i think it's it's dangerous well it is part of it is if we want to go deep deep it's the protestant work ethic mm -hmm. that's at play mm -hmm. for those of us in the united states or in the west that like you know hard good good returns come after hard work all those sort of things so we've got that going for us against us We've gotten, um, yeah, I'm gonna go there. Part of our white supremacy culture is a more is better. That's one of the elements of mm -hmm. one of the characteristics. If you want to read more about this, read Tema Okun's work on the characteristics of white supremacy. It's, but it's yeah, more is better, more is better, more is better. And as long as more is better across all the dimensions, if you're sitting there on the couch and it's not more, it's worse. When most of us, when we sink into our deep selves, we realize more is not better necessarily better is better obviously right um sometimes like would you rather have more friends that you feel exhausted with trying to keep up with all their expectations and like you're letting them down or would you rather have a smaller group of friends that you can be in tight community with most of us when we think about questions like this actually i would rather have a smaller set of community and be and have some peace and some ease than to have a larger community Money is one of those things where it turns out more can be better, right? Um, but I think that's there are some deep cultural elements that affect us that's not our own head trash, not our own baggage, but 
But the thing about head trash and this type of baggage is it doesn't have to be true for it to have an emotional effect on us. Emotion drives action. Mm. So if we're feeling that sense of shame that we're sitting on the couch on a Tuesday afternoon, it, um, that shame has motive force on us. And that's where a lot of this agita comes from, right? Is, is all of these sort of things going on. And unfortunately, most of us have become functionally ADHD. We may not be ADHD, but around devices and with our work, it's such that, and we lose track of that time. I, like I'm one of these offenders where I'm like, it's two 15. I can't just chill. But like, Oh yeah, Charlie, you got up at five o'clock this morning naturally. And you've been working since five, right? That's a full day. Right. But in that moment, I might be like, Oh, well it's two 15. I should be doing something. I should be, even though that's counter to my own work and counter to what I know to be true and sound. So much about pro- productivity needs to be centered around self-awareness needs to be centered around compassion. It needs to be centered around values. And unfortunately, it's centered around optimizing time. What does that mean to you then if we're taking, if you're looking at productivity through the lens of self-awareness, compassion, and values, how does that shift from, you know, the supremacy culture sense of urgency, everything now and bigger, better, faster, more? Yeah, well, I'll retract and say, um, without getting over definitional, you got to worry about my philosophy background because I'll, I'll do it, but I'm not going to like being productive means doing the things that help you thrive, doing the things that help you thrive. Thrive mm-hmm. is what do, does a lot of the lifting here. Cause what does it mean to thrive? What does it mean to be a full spectrum human? What does it mean to be more than an economic unit in a larger society? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you start unpacking that and you start addressing that thriving is very individual, though there might be, you know, if you're Aristotle, there's four dimensions. If you're Charlie, there's 10, right? We're humans, we're relationship. Like we have, we need play, we need work, we need family, we need friends, and we need to be able to balance and thrive on each of those or make intentional choices that some of those elements are not that important to us, right? Some of us may decide, you know what? I'm going to have a small friend set. I pick on friends, but that's that. Or I'm going to spend a little bit of time in hobby and play. And that's what works for me. And I'm going to address that. Or maybe I don't spend as much time working and being an, you know, doing the economic work because I want to focus more on family. I want to focus more on my spirituality. We get to make those choices, right? And that is where the self-awareness comes in. And the reality is not choosing is a choice. I know I sound like an existentialist philosopher, but hey, that's my lineage. And we Mm -hmm. don't realize that every time we choose to overwork, we're choosing to underlive. I totally track that. And I'm also recognizing for me that choice is a bit of a privilege too. This is why it's very, very individual. And it's not a cop out. Mm. It's just understanding just like we have bio individuality when it comes to diets and foods and medicine and things like bio individuality when it comes to how we need to spread our values around. So I'll say two things. One for you, this is not for your friends. You overworking and living a life that's off kilter for you helps no one. It doesn't help them. No, it doesn't help you. It doesn't help your community. So whatever shame that you have around that privilege being out of integrity doesn't fix anything. 
Mm-hmm. So that's that's for you, Rebecca. And I'm in the same way. I grew up hella poor. I get families who are working multiple jobs with kids, kids with special needs, multi-generational families. I understand all of that. And that's where, just to shout out those folks, they are doing the best they can to feed all of the different buckets that they have to. And some their range of choices around, say, self-care and recovery and discretionary time and discretionary funds are just different. And that's, that's sad. And we need to fix that. But we don't necessarily fix that by the rest of us being out of integrity, by the rest of us not doing the things that actually address the systemic parts of our society that lead to those outcomes. I think this is what I've been rumbling with, that part of that self-awareness you're talking about, that's not the end game, it's pregame, right? So if I have that self-awareness um, and, and can do that inner work, then I can then be a part of something bigger than just me. Exactly. I think sometimes we have the, the end game is just, well, this is what works for me, period. And this is something that I'm, I'm working on expanding myself. So how can we have a healthier relationship with time and productivity? I think... Um... If you don't have aligned goals that fit your priorities and your values, your time is going to be wobbly and you're going to be scattered. So that's when you start coming back to like, what matters for me? What matters now? And to your point, what matters for me and what matters now is not necessarily the self-centered side of things. It might really, really matter right now that I'm involved in a community project that's fixing some of these things. That's what matters. Not me, you know, watching another two videos on YouTube, right? Or maybe for me to do that work out in the community, Mm -hmm. I need some decompression time because guess what? We're all caring a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. Part of what we learn from social work, social change is if your well is empty, it's very, very hard to fill up other people's, right? And so some of us are not counting the waste quote unquote time is really what it is. It's decompression time. It's open time where we can settle, where we can do that. And, you know, in a lot of my teaching, that's why I have recovery blocks and people are like, what do I do recovery blocks? I'm like, I don't know. But what's what the activity is, is not as important as what it does for you. (laughs) And so if you watch, you know, two hours of people reacting to Chris Stapleton on (laughs) YouTube and it gives you joy and it's fun and things like that. And it helps you decompress. Guess what? That can be a recovery block. Just claim that. Cause that's clearly what you need because we don't need the extra shame and resentment and all mm-hmm. that stuff on top of it, because that's what creates the very pressure that you need to depressurize from right now. Someone, maybe not you, but someone was like, well, wouldn't I just be lazy now? So here's the thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Let's go there. I'm lazy. Oh. I want to hear what you have to say about this. I said this in my book, Start Finishing, where it's like my starting point with conversations around productivity is that one, you're not fundamentally broken. Mm. You're not uniquely love- defective. Like uh, when I say that, because a lot of times we see what's working for other people and we're like, yeah, no, nah, but that won't work for me because I got a thing, whatever that thing is. There's something unique about me that's defective that these principles won't apply, right? Second, this is not about character. 
This is not about if you were just more disciplined and you had more will, like all of that sort of stuff, not helpful. Right. Mm -hmm. And the third point is like, you're not fated to continually be unable to get your shit together. Right. Cause there's people who have that story. that's like, no matter what I do, I'm going to be behind. Those are not helpful places to start. When I look at most people who talk to me, they are doing the best they can. They are caring too much. They are naturally driven and they want to do good in the world. Yep. That's our starting point. So when people come out, how do I do more? That's a like, how do I be more productive? And I'm like, well, let's change this conversation because I'm not going to tell you how to do more. It's not useful, right? I'm going to try to help you do what matters most and make peace with the things that you have to let go of along the way. My job at the end of the day is to help people find more peace, to find more purpose, and to find more um, hope in their work. And to do that, we have to let go of this idea that we are tomorrow going to figure out how to put 14 units of stuff in a 10-unit bag. Right. Peace and purpose and hope. I think we need to drink a lot more of that right now. We need it on the regular. We need to drip it regularly. You know, and you talk about creating recovery blocks. And again, I remember when I first started trying to do that, and I remember sitting down the middle of the week, having a break, and it was so hard to train myself just to be, and I and I grew up in Minnesota, mm-hmm. so I have, that, yeah, <laughs> I have yep. that in my DNA, in my bones. So it's like, you're lazy. Who do you think you are? I had to sit there and work through a lot of that, and also someone who gets up early, you know, it's hard to realize what's a typical day, but there's this weird message of uh, maybe some of this is the agrarian culture too, which I've been influenced by and have such deep respect for too. But there, this, there really is, um, we have to learn how to recover. And I think I, I just see it breaking us in so many ways. I want to touch on something briefly that you write about um, project debt. And and I, I just want to, I mm-hmm. think that's a, a nice phrase. And how, how does that related to the intersection of boundaries, burnout, and time. Yeah. So a lot of us creative souls have this idea, uh, have this habit of having an idea and then immediately applying some commitment juice into it and then thinking we should do that idea. And we're taking in ideas and we're committing to things faster than we're shipping them. Mm. And so what ends up happening for us is we end up with this huge pile of quarter finished, half pre- half finished projects that some of our soul is attached to. We, we spent our life energy doing stuff with that. We got to finish it. We got to do something. We got to like, I can't just let it go. That's a waste. So we end up getting exhausted. We end up burned out and we end up even on those great weeks where the universe aligns and we have our great focus blocks and nothing goes wrong. We get to the end of the week and we're like, yeah, we did the thing. But then we creep and look in that black hole where all the projects live and like, but I didn't do the other things. Right. And Mm. we end up getting project debt. That's just like financial debt. We've gotten to the point to where we're caring so much that the emotional weight and the conceptual management of those projects exceed the value of the projects themselves. Wow. And so we just end up paying that debt over and over again. Like, oh, well, I'm going to go mess with Asana and I'm going to make sure I'm going to replan this all. I'm going to reprioritize it all because I'm going to get to it. Look, 
here's the thing. A lot of people are going to want to punch me in the eye today, Rebecca, and I'm here for it. Um, I learned this from Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, and I don't know, I don't remember when I read this, maybe 2014, 2015. And he's like, look, I'm paraphrasing because I don't know that he would start with look. Um, Look at your schedule two (laughs) weeks ago. Unless you make significant changes in the way you make decisions and set boundaries, your schedule two weeks from now will look the same way. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. We are th- our, our problem with projects and time. And if you're listening to this, like think about four months from now, four months from now feels like it's open space. Like there's no, there's like, yeah, I got all the time. No, you don't yeah. actually. <laughs> Cause four months from now, you're going to sleep. You're going to eat. You're going to go to the bathroom. You're going to do your daily routines. There's going to be the stuff of work and life that shows up. That's already pre-accounted for. You are not Mm. starting four months from now with a clean slate. I'm sorry. So if you want four months from now to look different than today or four months ago, you have to start making different decisions. It's really about choice. If you're okay with where you were four months ago or today, then you coast and that's great, right? You don't always have to be changing and optimizing and leveling up and taking stuff to 11. You don't have to. But understand that productivity, I keep saying it's about different things, but one of the aspects we keep coming back to time and time again is choice. Mm-hmm. Look, no productivity system is going to override your choices. There's no, Asana's not going to do that for you. Trello's not going to do that for you. Our new app Momentum, not going to do it for you because you can program all the stuff you want to and then do what humans do, look at it say, nope, and then go do something completely different. Why? Because your choice and how you're choosing on a day-to-day is really what's driving this bus here. So unless you choose to do something differently, the project debt you have today is going to be the same or worse four months from now. That totally lands because even even coming aware of becoming aware of project debt, it took me months to get out of it. Once I realized it, I had to do a, it was like to really get to the space, to get my calendar to a place where I had some more space. This is before COVID <laughs> and now I'm still trying to recover from COVID um, and, and just all that happened with that. But it does take time, even just identifying project debt isn't just a switch to flip. I was like, oh my gosh, what am I finishing? What am I just ending? What do I need support? It, it was like. It just took time to get to a place where I felt like I could breathe. So I just wanted to name that too. It's not just a decision to make. I guess it could be if you had that. The simplest thing that people could do to help themselves is also the hardest thing. (laughs) Always. Which is just to go and delete and archive a lot of those projects. That will clear up a lot of the cruft of yesteryear. But you have to make peace with that. How do you, how do you do that? How do you make peace with that? Well, multiple ways here. Part of it, that sort of self-awareness piece of it is understanding that the only way that you're going to pay those projects off and get them done is if you choose to say no to incoming projects for the next amount of time that it takes to get those off. Right. Cause you're already at capacity. Like one unit comes in, one unit's got to go out. Otherwise it's just going to be this continual piece of debt. So it's a choice that we have to make here, right? I'm either going to look at my current projects and current opportunities and prioritize them 
um, and trust that they are the best of the available options ahead of me because what's coming to me now, this is a mindset sort of piece we forget about. Um, so I'm a year stronger and better than I was a year ago. Mm-hmm. Right. I've lived more. I've become more capable. I have better opportunities. So why should the opportunity set of last year weigh so much on me today when the opportunities I'm creating today are better than the ones I had last year? Hmm. Okay. That takes a lot of self-trust and that's that self-awareness. I think that's what I see a lot of people like, how do I know I'm making the right decision? What if I'm letting go of the wrong thing and not committing to that? So I think that I see people spin and I've been there too. Well, that's the perfectionism Mm -hmm. element of white supremacy culture. You got it. I guess we're just hanging out in this one, right? So a lot of times when I'm coaching people and when they're in our academy and they're getting stuck around this, I'm like, okay, so what would you do if there were no one right answer here? And what do people do when you ask that question? (laughs) Sigh normally and smile. (laughs) Typically they know, they instantly know what they would do. Yeah. Right. It's not a binary. So it's like, what, what made us think that there was only one right answer here? Right. Let's unpack that a little bit. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what if this choice was a small stake and reversible one? It wasn't a van down by the river moment. We do these weird things to ourselves, Rebecca. It's like, (laughs) we think that if we make one bad decision, we're going to be in the van down by the river. Right. We're like one step away from failure. But yet we seem to think that we're five years away from success. How does that work? Why is it a bunch of choices stacked together lead to success, but one wrong decision means you're in the van down by the river? So that's how you start thinking about that. And so when you start talking about what matters now, it's a complicated or it's a complex question because it's not just what matters, it's what matters now. And that project, and we've had to do it as a team, and trust me, I do not like doing this because when you let go of projects that really matter to you, if you're really doing it, you're going to have to make space to grieve. Absolutely. And we don't do that. We grieve so horribly in our culture. We grieve so horribly. So instead of grieving and making space for that, we'd rather add to project debt. Oh, that's right. We try and numb that with more work. You nailed it. I'll get to it. I'll put it on there. I'll get it to it tomorrow. I'll pay a little bit more tomorrow. How the hell are you going to pay more tomorrow? What are you going to do differently? Right. And when people start, well, here's what I'm going to do differently. I'm going to eliminate these distractions. Like, okay, that might actually get you some time. You actually have a plan on how to do this. But a lot of times it's like, I'm going to do different tomorrow. And there's no real plan for what difference means besides work harder and grind a little bit more. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't work hard and grind yourself out of burnout. That's not how this works. Right. You can't grind yourself out of burnout. No. So, you're talking about what matters now, and that's a big anchor question that you teach and talk mm-hmm. about. Walk me through the process that you use to discern what matters now. I, I'm going to go mostly for me in this case, because obviously if I had someone else, like, how do you figure that? What? And I want to pause here because a lot of times we end up in this sort of existential spiral when people ask us what what our values are right. and you know what our priorities are. And so I talk a lot about the gap. What are the, what are the mm-hmm. felt gaps between where you are now and where you want to be? Um, you know, I'll say this and start finishing that like, look, finished projects are the bridge between your current reality 
and the life and work you want to be living in and doing. Finished projects are that bridge. If you just start a bunch of projects and don't finish them, you haven't built a bridge, right? You maybe got some columns and that's even more frustrating, right? So most of us are aware of that gap. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's start with that gap. What apart that, what of that gap is true for you versus you playing out society's narratives or your parents' narratives or your shoulds. Mm -hmm. I'm a real person that, well, like when my community starts talking about shoulds to me, they know it. I'm like, oh, hmm, the should language. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. Because notice, like, what's your favorite um, dessert, Rebecca? Oh, my gosh, a good brownie for sure with ice cream. A good brownie. When have you ever said in your life, with full seriousness, like, Oh, I should totally eat a brownie right now. Like I should be eating a brownie right now. Hmm. I've said I want to, <laughs> but I don't think I should on myself around eating a brownie. No, I should on myself about we other only, things. <laughs> yeah, we only should on ourselves about things where there's an external narrative or that we have some sort of tension. Like we, the proper language that we would say is like, I want a brownie. Mm-hmm. I want to do this. You can tell immediately when people start just by their linguistic structures and the words they're using for sure what of the things they're doing that are opp which is other people's projects and priorities right what are what are the projects of yesteryears what are the do outs that the ghost of yesteryear (laughs) put on them that they're still holding on to right and once we start shifting it's like you know that's emotionally weighty stuff yes but it doesn't actually matter. Okay. And I think a lot of people have a hard time differentiating their worthiness and mattering from the work they do. So when they hear that, they hear, I don't matter. Do you, does that come up with those that you work with too? I suspect yes. Yes. Um, usually not literally in that way. So I'm glad you, that, that's, that connection between self-work or self-worth and work yes. and value is like four level, four levels subterranean under what people are actually doing, right? And so they're like, so you, when you're like sitting there trying to, you know, have that Tuesday afternoon recovery block and you're struggling with it, underneath that struggle, and why I keep using the word shame, underneath that struggle is like, but if I'm not working, I'm not valuable. I'm not contributing. What's my worth if I'm not valuable and contributing? Ah, tension. But look at, like, we would never, ever tell our kids, well, I hope not. We would hope, I hope we would like, look, if you're not working hard, you're not valuable. Mm -mm. And yet, that's exactly what we tell ourselves. Right? And so, our worth as human beings has nothing to do with how hard we work, the amount of money we make. Then all the more stuff that that's all a separate sort of scenario. And we know that we matter because we're human and we matter. That's the baseline. Period. Period. Anything above that is just um, different narratives that we're starting to pile on top of things. Now, you know, the president of the United States in certain contexts matters more than I do. Right. That role has certain decisions and things like that, that like were that role not being there, like we get that, but that's normally not what we mean. Mm -hmm. Right. We normally mean there's something about 
hard work or us constantly working that means we're being valuable. And I want to push back and say, you know what? We're not merely economic units. We are economic units, but we're not merely economic units. That's not our sum. Um, That's not our entirety. It's not a sum. It's a part. You got it. How much of a part it is depends on how much we let it be. I think there's another part of this, though, too, is I'm thinking in my own journey and, and things I hear from those I work with, that if I slow down and and take that recovery time, it will be too painful. And I'll have to sit with the stuff that I've been dodging. And I didn't even know I was dodging it. Like, there's, it's not even a conscious. It's very reflexive. Like, no, 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 that's not comfortable. I got to just keep going. I got to keep going until they crash. And that's kind of the cycle, mm-hmm. right? Go, 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 crash. Oh, well, at least I burnt out. So then it's justified. But then they're not yeah, really yeah. sitting with, they're not feeling. <laughs> they're just working. You see that cycle too, yeah. yeah? I see it a lot. I mean, we've gotten to the point that not only do we glorify hard work, we glorify hard, we glorify burnout too. Totally. Right? Yeah. Like, it is uncouth to show up to a thing with your friends and everybody's commiserating about how busy they are and everybody's talking about how overwhelmed and overloaded they are. And then they get to you and you're like, I don't know. I, I left work at one today. I feel pretty good. There's no space for that. <laughs> no, you're kind of the jerk. If you say that, At least you're the you jerk. Can... You're like, Oh, <laughs> well, if you had for you. kids and maybe you don't understand and your boss, like you start getting piled on. Right. And it's like, <laughs> Maybe I just made different choices that are supporting me. Right? That's scary. Um, That's scary for people, I think. It's scary because you have to like go so countercultural and counter narrative on this one. Again, right? I think like, that's the scariest thing for me is that countercultural because it's really separates you. It could separate you from community. It it, it could feel like you're hurt your reputation. You might be misunderstood. There's yeah. a lot on the line. Here's my thing, and this is Charlie. I'm not saying this should be everyone. If the cost of me being in the community is my sanity and health, that's not a community I want to be a part of. Amen. Amen. And so if I need to choose different friends, if I need to choose different sort of scenarios, if I need to choose different professions, unfortunately, that's the choice I am going to make because I can't serve the world and myself and my family under those conditions. So I'm sorry. Like if that's the cost of being in community, I'm not willing to pay it because I know there are other communities I don't have to pay. I just want to let that breathe because I think that's it. I think we don't realize that sometimes what we're striving for is is actually not making us better. There are other options and that's power. That's standing in our power to say no. And I know that there are a lot of people, and especially women, given the way we socialize women, they're like, Charlie, like you don't get it. I can't just do that. Like I got to do all the things. But I want us to really honor how much we are participating in the very things that are leading to our struggle and burnout just by continuing to do it. The more that you are the person that shows up and joins the busy party, the more you're reinforcing to everyone that this is who we are. Um, this is, these are our values and it makes it harder for people to say, you know, what if we didn't know, what if we made a rule as friends 
that we show up and instead of like talking about all the things going on and kids and work and things like that, we talk about the thing that lit us up this week, that the funniest thing you've seen this week, or the, like we go to some of those conversations and have that crowd out the busy conversation. Yes. Maybe we would actually learn more about each other. And enjoy those. But we there's something that feels indulgent. And maybe that's some of that's that Protestant work ethic and that don't draw attention to yourself. And it's just there's a lot of mixed messages, especially with social media. Um, but you touched on something in your book too. You have some archetypes about folks who tend to burn out and have a hard time sorting out what matters. And at least the people I work with, and I know for me for a long time, I knew what mattered to everyone else around me. And I kind of morphed that into what mattered to me, but it wasn't what mattered to me. And so Mm -hmm. people were so good at knowing what matters to everyone else, but have a hard time and feel like it's indulgent to figure out what matters to to them. How do we figure that out and then prioritize what matters now to ourselves? Yeah. And not conflate with everyone else's what matters. Yeah. So I might push back a little bit on this one. There are some of us who truly do forget what matters to us and truly do forget what it means to play and to be happy and to experience joy. That that happens. I think most of us know those things and won't give ourselves permission to do those things because other people's needs matters more than mine do. And so I want to be clear here as we're talking about this it's not that you take your what you want and need and desire and push out everything else and that's all that matters i'm just trying to get our needs to get on the damn table amongst other Mm. needs like there's rebecca's needs there's angela's needs there's amy's needs there's Corey's needs and there's charlie's needs how do i balance all of those and how do i make room for myself And understand that my need to have an additional 25 minutes of just open thinking time is just as important as, you know, Amy's need to have 25 minutes of socialization time. I think for me, and I had this reckoning earlier this year when I was serving on a leadership team, that part of what messed me up was being indoctrinated in the customer is always right. Mm -hmm. combined with some other family of origin dynamics, I think there was a little bit of a cluster that happened. And I was like, now, you know, and I think with culture right now too, I'm like, no, everyone's entitled to their opinion and it's disorienting. So I, there's something about that messaging. I grew up in the, in the eighties and the nineties of, you know what, the customers are right. Always right. The constituents always right. You're not, it's not about you. It's always about them. So I think, and I'm seeing that around me a lot too. Yeah. This is why I will go on a rail against like servant leadership sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially when it goes toxic, because like the simple version of how people take servant leadership is like, well, you know, you find consensus with everyone and you sort of make sure that everyone like buys into something and then you do all that. And I'm like, actually, sometimes the best way you can serve your team is to give them a strong vision that they can rally behind. Sometimes the best way you can serve your teams is to say, no, we're not doing that. It doesn't make sense. And here's why. Right. Sometimes the best way to be a servant leader is not to be 
what it consigned like in extremes can be, which is like that sort of epiphenomenal or that sort of thing that's just hanging out there calling itself a leader. Sometimes you have to take a bold stance and make a hard decision um, and roll with it. Sometimes as a servant leader, you need to look at yourself and say, what do I need to put in place for myself so that I can be the best leader for this team? And I know all of that can be baked into servant leadership, but we get, we compress it to these tropes, right? Where the team's needs matter more than my needs, but we celebrate that, celebrate that. And then everyone that's a part of the celebration models That's what it means to be a good leader is to continually be overwhelmed, to be that hero that saves the day all the time, right? To be that that martyr that can come in, right? And we create these hero versions of things that none of us can live up to. And then we wonder why we struggle. And then we overwork. Then we get depleted. Then we get snippy with our teams and all the things we want to do, like the wrong thing in a touch point in a five second Slack exchange undermines trust and credibility that you've spent the last four months working for, right? We don't see those cycles because we're not self-aware and we're not stepping back and saying, okay, what's really going on here, right? And I come from a model leadership, or at least my aspirational is much more Taoist, right? Since there's a line that's, you know, the largely speaking, the best leaders are those that you don't recognize are there. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And people are like, okay, that that means servant leadership, right? No, not necessarily. (laughs) Right. Because there's certain things that you put in place where your team can just operate and it feels really seamless for everyone. It feels like things are just working. It feels like, hey, the boss is gone. Things just work. Great. Um, that takes a lot of work to get there. You have to stop micromanaging. You have to give people context. You have to empower people to make good decisions. Um, you have, they have to know what the standards are. There has to be enough team cohesion and trust. You've got to have good team habits. All those things have to be in place for that set of scenarios, for that set of conditions to happen doesn't happen on its own. If it did, we wouldn't have so many damn leadership books. Oh my gosh. So. Yes. It's hard work. (laughs) So true. It's just different work. We're looking for the easy, quick hack versus, and also comparing to others, trying to, you know, fit our life and values and what matters to us into what someone else says, this is the way, the truth and the light. I'm curious for you, especially after the last couple of years, what matters to you now? And and how has that changed, if at all, over all that we've been through? I think what matters to me more now, it's always mattered. I think just the saliency of it has become more important is um, the role community plays in helping us thrive all the way around, right? Um so that matters a lot to me now and at PF and, you know, sorry, at Productive Flourishing, a lot of what we do, it's being recentering our community, right? Recentering what that looks like. Um, on the personal level, it's been during this weird time of COVID, like I skew, I'm an ambivert, but I do so many conversations like this and I'm, I have a team that at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm good on people actually. Right. Um, I love them. Also, I love my time away from them. Um, 
But I've been thinking like, okay, in this time of COVID, how do I get the hell off the couch and get out and get involved in the community again? Because email and social media ain't cutting it for me, right? Um, so community matters a lot for me right now. It's always has, but um, we have certain events like for in in cultures that are you know, religious cultures that have, we have these defaults that happen that we don't have to make it a whole lot of decisions. Like you go to church on Sunday, you see people on Sunday, you do all of that human stuff. You have the social time, you have the emotional time, you have the spiritual time, then you go home. The next Sunday you do it again, right? Maybe you go to Wednesday or maybe like when I was in Boy Scouts, Tuesday night was Boy Scout night. So you just have these default social gatherings that keep you connected, that keep you in community, that keep you in relation, right? COVID stripped away a lot of those. You don't just show up, well, in Portland, Oregon right now, you don't just show up to a random place and just, you know, have a after hour social. Like that. that's not a thing anymore. It used to be, right? You don't just meet up with your buddies. Like you have to do a lot of coordination and negotiation and those types of things. And so community has always been important. I just realized how many default social gatherings I had mm. that made that work, right? Conferences, which is where we met on two of them. We were talking about that in the green room, mm. right? They were default social gatherings. Like I was like, oh, well, I'll see Rebecca sometime in the next six months somewhere, <laughs> right? Because we sort of flock around these same events. It's great. I don't have to make a special plan to do that. After two years of not making, not having those and not realizing, wow, there are like 200 people who I would normally see every six months or a year that I've fallen out of touch with. It's been forever. It feels like five years because COVID times, but also we don't have these <laughs> things. So for me, it's been, how do we recreate some of those? Also... Angela, my wife and I have been having a lot of conversation about how do we get out of the no to people and events and things like that, that we've had for COVID to be like, Hmm, maybe it's a yes, or it's more yeah. yeses. How do we go through that? And so it's just been, that's what matters a lot to me now, aside from, you know, business stuff, like the book I'm working on and the app we're launching, things like that. But outside of that, like, that's really what I'm thinking a lot about. Like community is meaning something new to a lot of people too. I don't think people really saw it three dimensionally before mm -hmm. um, COVID. So I thank you for sharing that. I'd, I'd love to to talk about success just to as we wind down. Mm -hmm. And I know it's a big topic, and you write about it in your book, um, Start Finishing. Also, I'd love to hear how you define success and how that's different from what you were taught. I'm going to state, I guess, what seems obvious to me. Success is contingent on one's sort of goals, priorities, and values in that sort of sense. So there's no sort of like, I can't think about success without thinking about like, well, what are we trying to do though? Right. Um, and I know that sounds obvious, but a word like that, I'm like, well, are we talking about my life? Are we talking about this book? Are we talking about this project? Because otherwise, like, it's meaningless. It has no grip for me. Right. Um, I'm not trying to say it's a bad question. I'm just trying to say this type of question. It's like, like if you, if I were to be asked, like, what does success with your next book look like? I can tell you that. Right. Or the app or things like that. So I always make that question like, hmm, what's the domain of consideration 
Interesting. So what does success look like to you? Is Do you have like a broad metric or do you only look at success kind of in a domain? Is that how you define successes in these domains based on kind of those goals and values and metrics? Um, mm, this is a problem when you've done goal setting stuff and you've, in, you've integrated so long as it becomes intuitive. Um, Mm-hmm. Success and thriving are intimately related. When it comes to my life at whole, I, again, I would start to break that down. It's like, well, really, where does it mean? Like, I can't consider myself successful without thinking, like, how's my health? How are my relationships? Where am I on play and joy? Where and on on some of those? And that sort of macro lens is what helps me get there um, to to saying, like, okay, success means you know, um, living in, living in ways such that I'm thriving, such that my family is thriving, such that my community and business are thriving, um, and working that way. And so it's always, that's why I will always have a gap and I've come to recognize that, right. That just -hmm. because there's a gap doesn't mean I have to be frustrated about it and wake up with that sort of existential anxiety that I'm never going to be there. It's like, there's no future version of Charlie that's going to wake up and say, okay, I'm done not going to happen. It's not arriving and then coasting. No. And the gap doesn't mean you're not a success. No. It's just part of the gig. It's just part of the gig. Like one of the questions I will ask myself a lot when I'm stuck with a decision, I'm like, what's the most abundant possibility I can create in this moment? Ooh. And then like, okay, so can I do that? Like, and then why not? And so that question, I'm going to wake up if I get to live that long, I'll be 90 and I'll be like, what's the most abundant possibility that I can create today in this moment with this interaction? You know, I usually bristle at the word abundance and abundant because it's, I think it just feels scarcity, but I like this question because it feels so generous. It feels expansive. It's not about hustling. Wow. That's powerful. Yeah. I really, I really appreciate that. I will maybe bring in that to my next family meeting. My kids, my poor kids are like, what? <laughs> Who'd you More talk cookie? to today, mom? <laughs> like, Come pretty on. Much. Pretty Doing much. Podcast though, mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they love so, it though. They love yeah, it. Yeah. So that's where, um, I don't focus a lot on success in that way. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, tr- I'm not trying to be. No, state this is the good. question. Right. No, I'm just like, good. Hmm. Like, and I have people around me, um, my best friend, who's also works in the company with me. He's like, you don't get it. Like Charlie, like how much we actually end up like creating and accomplishing things like that. Cause I'm like, that's not what I'm actually focused on in a lot of ways. Right. That happens as a byproduct of a lot of other things that we do. Right. Success is a byproduct of the goals and the values and just alignment and all the, the self-awareness and the compassion and, Yes, I'm here for that. Yeah. I'm here for that. So I'm curious too, is leading productive flourishing your company? Is this what you thought you'd be doing today? No, no, not at all. Um, leading it and where it is today is, I didn't think I would be doing it in this way five years ago, right? And mm-hmm. so um, and so I, I'm imagining because about every five-year cycle, I'm like, oh yeah, I know what's going on. And then five years later, I'm like, I didn't see this one coming. 
Right. And I, that's fun in a lot of ways. Right. Cause I'm like, I don't have to know. Right. And with the greater possibilities that exist in the world, like why the hell do I think I would know all of those right now <laughs> of what the most abundant possibilities? Like, no, I, I can't know that it's impossible. Right. Um, I can just do my best day in day out with the team and with the community and we'll see what we co-create together. Right. And so, um, it's not at all what I thought I was going to be doing 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago. Like I knew I would be having productive flourishing in 2008 because that's when it became, and that's when it started happening. But, um, yeah, I, it's, so what I would say is the way that I'm doing and what we're going, what we're working on and how we're doing it is not something I would have seen five years ago. I'm excited to see where you continue to grow. And and I, I'm really struck, too, as I'm taking in everything you shared today, like even just what you just said is, hey, what are we going to co-create today? You have such radical presence. That's something I'm really working on this year. Have to have a presence and a curiosity. And that requires a lot of trust and, and, and capacity to sit with discomfort, um, you know, to say, let's find out versus I'm going to drive it. I'm going to manage it. I'm going to try and control it. So I'm really struck by that. And I really, really appreciate that. So do you have a few minutes for some quick fire fun questions? I do. Let's get it. Okay, great. So what are you reading right now? Okay. So this one was a hard one because I tend to read three to five books at a time. Um, All right. And so I'm just going to give you the the three that popped up. So Zone to Win by Jeff Moore, um, hmm. Distributive Justice by Michael Walzer, and 10 Equations That Rule the World. 10 equations. Oh, gosh, that one sounds good. What's uh, What song are you playing on repeat? Um, this is one I would rather not because it sticks with me, but it's Skin in the Game by Nako and Medicine for the People. <laughs> what is the best TV show or movie you've seen recently? I love Star Trek Discovery. I do. I think it's one of the best, Discover- or best Star Trek series, and it's been one of the most fun sci-fi series, and I'm so much I love about it. So it's supposed to be quick fire. I'll be quiet. Star Trek Discovery. That's like we're digging Picard, so we're 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 on that track. What is your favorite '80s movie, show, or anything '80s pop culture? Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Hello, oh my gosh, is the Temple of Doom the one where you put the hand in and there were the snakes in there? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's burned in my brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, what What is your also mantra? no time for love, Doctor Jones? We got to go now, right? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. So many memories are flooding back yeah. right now. Now to be clear, there is so much stuff in the eighties that we can no longer get away from. So nope. I'm sure I'm going to have to fill out some HR paperwork for that one. But that was, that line sticks with me with my team where they'll be talking about something and be like, no time for love, Dr. Jones. We, we got to go. <laughs> Anyways, it's a whole thing. It's a thing. What is your mantra right now? Um, right, right now. Is how's the universe working for me right now? How is it working for you right now? Really well, most of the time, actually. So to unpack that one, especially when there's difficult times come up, I'm like, mm, I'm so mad about this. This is frustrating. I'm like, but how might the universe be working for me? Or how is it? And I just can't see it yet because I'm yeah, so yeah. attached to certain things. So oh. um, that's one of mine that always helps me come back to present and then look at things more broadly. Thanks for unpacking that. And what is an unpopular opinion that you hold? Chocolate is overrated. Did you just say chocolate's overrated? It is. Dude. Man. Okay. 
having a moment here. <laughs> you're like, I'm, I can't air this episode now. <laughs> we were lined and then now. But you're I, I lived in Switzerland right near like chocolate factories. So I've got feelings Look, about my dad chocolate. Was the same way. Right. And so <laughs> I don't know if it's just something genetic, but I'm just like, yeah, it's all right. Oh my gosh. Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? Um, the who is super challenging for me, but there's some what, and I think that's just like hope, faith, and compassion. Mm. Like hanging on to those helps me be a better leader and human. Always. I'm with you on that. Charlie, I know that you are working on a book that's coming out next year in 2023. I'd be honored for you to come back because I didn't even get to ask a chunk of questions I wanted to today. And I'd love to hear more about that book. Is that something you'd be willing to do? I would love to come back and talk to you about that book. And I think um, for leaders, it's going to give a useful um, place for them to work on building teams that have better belonging and higher performance. Can't wait for it. I really can't. Charlie, this has been a joy. I'm going to be digesting this for a while, um, but it was really an honor to have this length of time to hear a bit more of your body of work. And I know so many people are going to get a lot out of this. So thank you again for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rebecca. When you are crystal clear on your values and what matters most, you feel more engaged and energized by how you use your time. Now, it's a fight to maintain the practices Charlie shared with us today. There sure is a lot of noise and distractions pulling us away from focusing and finishing what matters. But he helped us understand when we develop reasonable expectations around the amount of deep work we can actually get done in a day, shame and overwhelm also have less of a chance of hijacking our time. And if we can release what Charlie called project debt, you know, those projects that never get finished and keep weighing down our time for deep work, we release the weight of perfectionism and find more space all around. So are you clear on what matters most to you? How has perfectionism kept you from releasing or finishing projects on your to-do list? And what changes do you need to make today that will give you more space for deep work around what matters most to you? Now, I know we can't bend time like Dr. Strange, no matter how much we try, but we sure can get better at how we use the precious hours we have by rethinking how we see time and use it. This is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. 
internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster hope that is actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you, where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, sign up for the free Unburdened Leader weekly email along with receive Unburdened Leader resources and find ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.